Welcome back to another episode of the CSK8 podcast. My name is Jared O'Leary. Each week of this podcast is either an interview with a guest or multiple guests or a solo episode where I unpack some scholarship in relation to computer science education. In this week's episode, I'm unpacking a paper titled Examining Coding Skills of Five-Year-Old Children and it's by Sermin Matin, Mehmet Bazaran, and Damla Kalencia. Apologies if I mispronounce any names. Here's the abstract for this paper. Quote, the purpose of this research is to examine the coding skills of five-year-old children in terms of some variables. The research sample comprises 160 children aged five years studying in kindergarten affiliated with the Ministry of National Education in Gaziantep City Center in the 2021-2022 academic year. As a data collection tool in the research, the personal information form, which includes personal information about children and their parents, and coding test two, the short form of coding test and coding test developed by Kalencia et al., were used to evaluate the coding skill levels of five-year-old children. Pearson correlation analysis, t-test, and ANOVA were used to analyze data. As a result of the findings obtained from the research, it was concluded that coding skills were not related to gender, but were related to whether the children had coding education, the education level of parents, and their families' income level, end quote. If I were to summarize this paper into a single sentence, I'd say that this paper investigates whether gender, parent education, or socioeconomic status has an impact on coding abilities of five-year-olds in Turkey. As always, you can find a link to this paper in the show notes at jaredoleary.com or by simply clicking the link in the app that you're listening to this on, and it'll take you directly to the show notes. This paper is open access, so you can't actually read the whole thing, which is wonderful. All right, so in the introduction of the paper, the authors are kind of talking about how coding is an essential literacy or skill for the 21st century. They summarize what coding is, but I'm assuming I don't need to really talk about that to this particular audience. In particular, they talk about the coding in general, as well as some of the educational approaches related to coding or often discussed in relation to coding, like Piaget and Papert. They talk about how people have tried to evaluate different coding skills, as well as some of the different factors that have impacted coding skills according to some different studies. So if you're interested in reading more of the background or on those different topics or the review of literature, I highly recommend taking a look at some of the papers in the opening couple of pages. Now, the method section talks about how they had 160 different kindergarten-aged children in the Agaziantep province. They also discuss how they use two different types of coding tests. So one is just coding tests, and the other is coding test two. So the first one is a little bit longer, so it's about 30 to 45 minutes, whereas the second one is 10 to 15 minutes in order to actually conduct it. And so this process allows a um, practitioner like a teacher or someone or a researcher to tell a story and then ask kids to kind of point with their finger onto some different um, like mats to be able to basically describe like how a character in a story might be able to solve a problem. And so like kind of give a little point of, the, okay, they're gonna go through the maze this way and go up and collect this thing, etc. This makes it so that the students actually don't need to be able to read, but just need to be able to listen and then can just kind of like interact with different manipulatives that are just simply point to different things. So this is a really interesting way of doing a test with early and pre-readers, which if you're interested in learning more about early and pre-readers in terms of coding, I highly recommend taking a look at some of the podcasts on my website. So in particular, take a look at the episode titled Exploring CS and CT in Pre-K with Gail Lovely. That's on episode 11. That was a long time ago. We're like on episode 170 or something like that. Another one that I recommend is The Place for Joy in Teaching and Learning with Sarah Lev, and that's from episode 122. Both of those kind of specialize in talking about 
Coding and Computational Thinking with Early and Pre-Readers. And I include links to both of those in the show notes at jaredoleary.com. Okay, so that was a summary of the first half of the paper, basically. I'm going through this one pretty quick because a lot of this information, I think most of the people in the audience probably already know like what coding is and how you might teach it, etc. So let's talk about the results. Let's get a little bit nerdy. One of the findings that they have, this is from page six, quote, gender does not affect children's coding skills, end quote. Now I've done several different podcast episodes that talk about gender. I linked to all of them in the tag in the show notes. And there are a couple that I'd like to kind of point out. One is how early does a CS gender gap emerge? A study of collaborative problem solving in fifth grade computer science. So this one is interesting because it talks about how there is like this tendency for by the time kids get into middle school, there is this gap in gender, but that doesn't necessarily happen in early ages. And this study kind of re-verifies that with this different subpopulation. So it's basically saying that, hey, it, by the time kids are five years old, they don't have this gap in terms of coding ability. But we have found some other studies that we've talked about in this podcast where there is a gap that emerges and it's usually late elementary, early middle school when that tends to happen. But another really interesting podcast episode that I did was on a paper that was titled The Intersection of Gender, Race, and Cultural Boundaries, or Why is Computer Science in Malaysia Dominated by Women? And that one was fascinating. So in that particular episode, they talk about how the women in Malaysia are a higher percentage in the STEM and IT and CS fields compared to men. And so it talks about how it is not a, just like a gender characteristic, but more of a cultural characteristic that might lead to certain genders dominating some fields over others. And if you wanna learn more about that, take a look at that podcast episode that was from episode 74. So that was a long time ago, but it is a really interesting study to take a look at. And I do include a link to it in the show notes in that episode. Okay, so the authors found that gender did not have uh, any kind of impact, but the authors did find that prior education related to coding and experience with coding did have an impact on how students scored in their tests. So basically the authors found if you had more experience with coding, you're going to score higher with coding. And this is for five-year-olds and that makes sense. If you listen to the episode that I did on Kay Anders Erickson's Cramps and Teschromer's paper and it was titled The Role of Deliberate Practice in the Acquisition of Expert Performance, that kind of talks about how it's really that like the thing that was popularized by Malcolm Gladwell, the 10,000 hour rule, that's kind of like not really true it's kind of uh, just a, a base number that was drawn from Erickson's work as well as some many other scholars in like sports psychology in particular. And they talk about how different domains have different levels of practice that are needed to achieve that expertise or international level of performance. So if you wanna learn more about that and how that kind of like impacts education or computer science education in particular, and my own thoughts on it, I highly recommend taking a look at that particular episode. That is episode 66 if you're interested in it. So now let's get into the third result from this paper. So they found that the parents' educational levels did have an impact on how students would do with the coding or with responding to these problem solving. So the authors noted that it's both the mother and father's education levels has an impact on how students would perform on this. Now there is a bit of a heteronormative bias here. It did not mention any same sex relationships, but maybe it's just like the smaller sample size or something. Maybe they didn't have any in those particular families. But either way, the results showed that the more educated the parents are, the higher the students are going to perform on these kinds of tests. And the final result that they talk about is how socioeconomic status also has an impact on how well the students are going to perform. They found that, quote, children's coding skills increases as the family income level increases, end quote. 
It's from page seven. So here's a quote from page eight. This is in the discussion, conclusion, and implications. Quote, the higher educational status of parents allow children to have a more advantageous background. Thus, children with good backgrounds are more exposed to technological tools, allowing them to develop their coding skills better from the early years, end quote. A little bit further down in the next paragraph, quote, when suitable environmental conditions are provided for children to access technological tools, these tools support their coding skills, end quote. Okay, so that makes sense. So if you listen to that episode that I do on the expertise and skill acquisition and whatnot, it talks about how basically the more deliberate time you spend working on something, the better you can be with it. Okay, that makes sense. Like playing the drums that are behind me, I, in order to get better at it, I had to practice many, many hours. If I wanted to get better than people who started earlier than I did, I had to put in more time and make up for it and practice more efficiently than other people. So same thing with coding. When kids are learning how to code, whether they're five-year-olds or 15-year-olds or whatever, the more time they're able to invest in it, and not only just like coding, but also using technology and understanding different things you can do with technology, the higher they're going to perform when it comes to this. So as educators, we need to look at not just what students are doing in the classroom and having access to coding and computer science education. That's wonderful. Yes, we need to focus on that. But we also need to look at how there is a gap outside of school that can impact students' understanding of coding. You're going to really need to factor in not only what students are doing in the classroom, but what they have access to before they come to your class and outside of the class. So I'd sometimes have some kids come to the classroom and they'd be like, hey, check out this really cool program that I made over the weekend. And I'd look at it and be like, wow, this was awesome. It shows that you published this at like 11 o'clock on Saturday evening. Maybe you should have been sleeping instead, but good job with your project. There were other kids who wanted to also do that. However, they did not have access to either a device or to internet. This was pre-COVID, so this was several years ago. And so devices weren't as necessary for at-home learning. So the students who did not have access to those devices, they simply did not have the time to be able to practice. It's like if I wanted to get good at playing the drums, I need to be able to have access to like drumsticks and a drum set or whatever. If I don't have access to that kind of equipment, I can't practice as effectively as somebody who does. So although there are opportunities to be able to do unplugged lessons and things like that when it comes to coding, those who have access to be able to actually apply their knowledge into a device is it's just going to be like night and day in terms of their understandings from those who don't have that access over an extended period of time. If you were to look at something over the course of like a week or a month or a unit or maybe even a semester, you might not notice a huge change. But I can almost guarantee you that there's going to be a drastic difference between those who have access and those who do not over like a decade or so. So we need to not only look at what's going on in the classroom, but what is also going on outside of the classroom that might impact how students will be able to perform in our class. All right, so that's actually the end of this paper. I skipped like the first third of it because it was basically review of literature and the next main section was just talking about the methods and whatnot. If you wanna take a look at it, you can just check it out in the show notes. Again, jaredoleary.com. But now I've gone to share some lingering questions or thoughts at the end of these like unpacking scholarship episodes. So the first question or thought that I have is what other factors at home might impact the students you work with? So going off of the rant that I was just talking about with expertise, what students have access to and what they're able to practice outside of your classroom can have a profound impact on how well they will perform inside of it. This could also be within your school. So if you have like an isolated computer science class where you are the only teacher who is dedicated to teaching computer science, let's say at your elementary school like I was, cool. 
Every single kid might be required to go to that class and they're all going to attend it. That's great. But what if you have, I don't know, let's say the fourth grade department and there's a couple of teachers in there, but only one of them is also integrating computer science in that class, but the other two teachers are not. Well, in that case, then a third of the students are likely going to excel faster than the other two thirds who do not have access to computer science in those classes. The more exposure, the more opportunities to apply understandings in new contexts, both within school, outside of school, in formal, informal, non-formal learning contexts, etc. All of this is going to add up and make it so that the more experienced students are going to likely perform better than the less experienced students. Think of this in relation to, again, like music or another literacy or literally another language. Like the more you practice doing something, the better you're going to get at it. When I was practicing Japanese more, I was getting better at it. I haven't been practicing it as much lately, and my Japanese has suffered from it. It's the same thing when it comes to any kind of domain or skill you're trying to develop. So with all of those rants being said, how might you address access and equity gaps that might exist in the communities that you work with? Whether it's access to devices or to internet, maybe some of that has been solved after remote learning has become a more popular thing. But what about access in other classes? What about access to more supplemental resources before and after school? What about access within your class? Now, if you reflect back onto episode number 106 of Lifelong Kindergarten with Mitch Resnick, in that conversation, Mitch talks about how it's very important for researchers to consider not only how to prove something, but also how to improve something. So if you are a researcher or a district admin or a leader in your community or whatever, how might you be able to improve the access and equity gaps that might exist in relation to some of the things that we just learned about in this particular episode, as well as other ones, in your community? Not just in your classroom, but outside of your classroom. If we begin to think more systematically about how what we are doing in the class is impacted by what is going on outside of the class and a more holistic approach, we can begin to take a look at and maybe address how different factors will impact how students perform in our classes. This is across the grade levels. I've seen this happen not only with the kindergarten students, but all the way up through the graduate students that I was working with. Like there's so much that goes on outside of the classroom that is going to impact students' learning. So if there's one main takeaway that I can recommend for this particular episode, it's to really think through how there are so many factors that impact students' learning and not just look at like what's going on in the classroom itself, but also think about how you might improve the things going on outside of the classroom and that would have an impact on learning itself within the classroom. So I know it's easier said than done, like especially if you have several hundred students that you're working with at any period like I did, as opposed to a single class with like, I don't know, 30 some odd students, something like that. But if you are able to think about how there's other factors outside of your classroom itself that are impacting the learning on, going on inside of your classroom, that might be able to have like a big shift in terms of how you approach the classes that you are working with. For myself, the thing that I really focused on was going for individualized learning within a shared group space. So I encouraged peer-to-peer learning, but while I was walking around, I was trying to work with students one-on-one -on -one rather than addressing the full group and have everybody doing the same thing and going at the same pace. So I was doing several programming languages all in the same shared space. Students could pick what programming language they want on what kind of platform to create what kind of project that interested them. 
So some of them were coding music, others were coding games, some were coding stories, some were coding animation or apps for their like iPad or whatever. This not only accounted for a like variegated interests with the students themselves, but it also accounted for different levels of expertise and understandings. So I had some students who were coming in and were able to build off of years of prior experience using technology and maybe even coding before coming into my class. And then I had other students who were like in middle school who literally never saw a computer until they came into my classroom. Being able to have that kind of a spread in a class from very novice to very experienced, you need to be able to adjust. So for me, the answer was to focus on one-on-one -on -one individualized pedagogy, which is something that I call interest-driven learning. Now, if you wanna learn more about some of the pedagogies that I use, or as well as like how to apply this into curriculum, I've included some episodes in the show notes that are linked in there that I recommend checking out, like Rhizomatic Learning with Katherine Bornhurst, John Stapleton, and Katie Henry, or the episode that's titled Applications of Affinity Space Characteristics in Computer Science Education. So that's episode 89. And the Rhizomatic Podcast is episode 75. This is episode 171, so there are plenty more episodes that you can take a look at or listen to that will hopefully assist you with your journeys through computer science education. I know this was a little bit of a shorter episode, but I hope you found it useful. If you did, please consider sharing it with somebody else or leaving a review on whatever app you're listening to this on. Stay tuned next week for another episode. Until then, I hope you're all staying safe and are having a wonderful week.